Filmmakers make films, but films make filmmakers. From blockbuster premieres to grindhouse theaters, late night cable to the local video store, there is no greater classroom for aspiring filmmakers than cinema itself. Join your host, Eric Skorzynski, as he dives deep into the minds of legendary directors, producers, actors, and more to discover their biggest influences and to explore the impact their films are leaving behind. This is Film School. Grab your popcorn. Class is about to begin. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Film School podcast. Today's guest is amazing. His name is Zach Hamilton. He knew from a very young age he wanted to work in the film industry, but it wasn't until after he pursued careers in the emergency medical field and co-owning a cupcake shop that he decided to actually take his chance. He attended the Digital Animation and Visual Effects School out of Orlando, Florida, where he earned his bachelor's degree in VFX production. His first gig was working with MPC Vancouver on a little film called Justice League. He also worked on Fifty Shades Freed, The Strain, and several other projects. After his time with NPC ended, he became enamored with the production side of the industry, and after some further education, he landed his first gig in production with Falcon's Creative Group. He was able to work with clients such as Marvel Entertainment, National Geographic, PBS, and many more, but his favorite assignment, and we talk about it on the episode, was as the unit production manager and lead post-production coordinator for Halo Outpost Discovery, a traveling meta-interactive experience. Though he enjoyed his time in themed entertainment, Zach always longed to get back into the film and television industry, and in 2019, Crafty Apes VFX offered him that golden opportunity. Since his return, Zach has worked on over 20 film and television projects across three visual effects studios. He's known for his attention to detail and his thoughtfulness when it comes to clients. Some of his credits include Mulan, Star Trek Picard, Cry Macho, and Winning Time, The Rise of the Lakers dynasty. I love this conversation with Zach. It was a really awesome discussion. We talked a lot about why modern CGI sometimes doesn't hold up quite as well as you'd expect with the amount of money being thrown at it. We talk about how COVID impacted the VFX industry. We talked about some hidden effects in shows like Ugly Betty or films like Cry Macho. There's a really interesting story about the rooster in that movie and all of the changes they needed to make in post to make that character work. It's a really phenomenal discussion. And if you want to know more about Zach and his work, head over to HamiltonVFX.com. That's H-A-M-E-L-T-O-N-V-F-X.com. All right, let's get into the show. Zach, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, man. I'm stoked to be here. Yeah, glad to have you on. And uh, I love talking to people who work in the world of VFX because uh, it's one of the most, uh, it brings up some of the most fun debates and conversations around film uh, in general, just talking about how to achieve certain things. Uh, But before we dive into all of that, uh, I want to know what was your kind of first, uh, I guess, first taste of cinema where it actually profoundly impacted you in some way? Like when's the first time you remember watching something and going like, oh, there's something here. Like this isn't just me passing the time. This is like. Well, gave me a little bit of a tingle, if you will. Yeah. A little tingle. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, I I would have to say probably uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, Mm. uh, Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. I it was a massive fan of the movie as a child. It definitely scared me a little bit, but I was willing to put, you know, put up with it because I enjoyed it so much. Um, and honestly, it made me really fascinated with the idea of animation. 
um, any animation. I mean, obviously that's a very specific form of stop motion animation, but uh, it was just really fascinating. And I wanted to know more of like how they did this even at a young age. Uh, and that was initially my goal. Uh, not we can get into that later, but that was my goal was I was going to get into animation. Obviously my career took a little bit of a, a different turn, but it really fascinated me. I loved the aesthetic of it. I loved the design. I loved that. It just felt so real in a weird way because obviously everything was real to a degree. Obviously there were some post effects happening as well, but for the most part, it was all on camera. Um, despite it looking so fantastical. What age were you when this kind of revelation happened? Like, was this very early on or was this a little bit later on? Like you said, you watched it as a kid and enjoyed it, but when did that shift happen to like, how do they do this? Yeah. Well, I feel like someone might pimp me on this. I don't know because <laughs> I don't, I don't remember specifically when it came out, but I would say I was probably around like eight. Now okay. the movie came out before, you know, before or after maybe, but I think that's a safe age. I was definitely younger. I don't think I was 10, Gotcha. Uh, but probably around eight and it definitely struck a chord with me. And then I think it kind of continued forward with, you know, the other films that came out that were similar. And I was just a big Tim Burton fan as a kid. And so that kind of just continued that, that interest continued to grow with subsequent films being released did it continue with like stop motion specifically or was it something that like expanded into like oh there's all these different types of effects and like you know for for me it was it was very much like i i got into like makeup effects you know that was my Mm. huge thing where i was like and it was the same reason it was like how do they make something that's obviously not real look real you know and then it was like oh how do they make spaceships fly in star wars like you start going down this rabbit hole that nobody understands um like what was kind of the trajectory for you over the next couple years i think all animation in general is definitely very interesting to me um and I was a huge fan of obviously the Pixar films, as are most people, uh, rightfully so. Um, but also to that point, other things that really started to begin to interest me, uh, getting more into the traditional VFX lane was Jurassic Park. I mean, that mm-hmm. film, that was so I have a little one and Jurassic World is his franchise, whereas mm-hmm. mine is more, you know, Jurassic Park. And I've learned to appreciate Jurassic World, but it relies a lot more heavily on the visual effects aspect versus the practical special effects of actually having, to your point, creature design and makeup effects and actually trying to do as much as you can on camera. Obviously, huge amount of visual effects, but when you really think about total screen time, it's actually very sparingly used. Yeah. Uh, but when it's used, it's fantastic. And so that really blew my mind, especially the the rain sequence with the T-Rex attacking the Jeeps. Um, looks so real and when you come to realize that every time it's walking it's visual effects and mm-hmm. when it's not walking it's real you really can't tell the difference like it looks yeah. so even now and there's a lot of movies that were from that time period that have not aged as well because they relied heavily on visual effects and just at the time it wasn't up to snuff but they were really smart in how they did it and uh, that definitely got me more interested in visual effects i think at that point once I kind of started watching Jurassic Park and Lost World and the third one as well. Yeah. I mean, this this is something that comes up all the time, which is the the VFX versus practical versus, you know, like, um, and it, it's something that, you know, I mean, I, so I was born in 95. So then, you know, grew up through really like, I mean, I grew up while George Lucas was going like, Hey, let's shoot a movie on digital and, you know, do the prequels and, and recut it. You know, so, right. And let's, let's shoot these all. And, and, you know, it's, 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 it's an interesting thing because like when you're a kid, you know, when you first start watching like, Oh my God, that's amazing. And then you start getting into filmmaking. They're like, why the hell are they doing this? Like what, you know, why, why are they doing these visual effects? And, and so like I had, 
through high school and up until I'd say, honestly, maybe a couple of years ago, I had this chip on my shoulder about uh, new movies and visual effects and like CG oh, ruined filmmaking. Young snob? I can understand you know? the older, yeah. <laughs> the older people were eliminating jobs. I could see that, but you know, you're just like, oh, yeah. I'm a purist. And, but that's, uh, that's how it was though. And, and it was, it was a, it was a video. Um, it was a video. I think it was, I think it was maybe, uh, maybe it was Freddie Wong that did it, but it was, it was the, um, I love Freddie Wong too. And he was somebody that, that made me go like, Oh, this is really interesting. But it was like, there was a video that got put out on YouTube a while back and it was like, um, you know, our visual effects ruining movies or something like that. Some, some clickbaity title. And it was oh, basically yeah. saying like bad visual effects stand out, but there's a lot of good visual effects that go unnoticed. Like it mentioned like Mad Max Fury road was like the big piece it really showed. And I was like, I was sitting there. I had watched Mad Max and came out of the theater and going like, man, they did it all for real. That's why this movie was the best. And then they show the breakdown and you're like, oh, like this is invisible effects. So um, did you have any of that where you felt like early on you were like, man, they did all this for real in this movie. And then you, like you had this moment of like, is visual effects a good thing, bad thing? Like, or was it just, oh, this is a really cool tool from right out of the gate? Yeah, no, I mean, I def I think everyone who goes into any sort of film school is going to have some kind of bias towards visual effects because you're you're watching a lot of the classics, right? That had to really try to get, and there's something to that, right? You have to be super creative because that's all you've got. Like you have to kind of really come up with some interesting solutions because you don't have a computer that can solve a lot of these things, right? And so that's why you get some movies where there's just, you know, look, it's in there because what are we going to do? We didn't like Kevin Smith, very famously in Chasing Amy. There's that see the rain sequence. Again, I'm, I guess I'm obsessed with rain is what I'm getting at here. <laughs> uh, but um, but there's that rain sequence with uh, mm -hmm. Ben Affleck. And uh, and I, I feel terrible because I can't remember her name, but the lady who plays Amy and uh, and they're kind of pulling back. You know, there's a dolly motion going as he's walking away from her and you clearly see the camera crew uh, in the reflection of one of the windows. And it's so crazy because I cannot tell you how many times it's come across my desk now as a producer where like easily a good 30 to 40 percent of the work that we're going to do on a project is stuff like that. Like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, you can see crew or oh, the mm -hmm. crew is literally in the shot 100 percent. Yeah. Uh, and we need you to remove them. But back then you didn't have that option. So you'd have to get creative with a certain angle or putting hanging black cloth over the yeah. camera, trying to dis disguise it so you don't see it. Yeah, I love practical effects. There is something to being on camera. Underworld, for instance, had some really great practical effects mm -hmm. with the, the lichens and how they literally harness these guys up and they're like in wolf costumes running on walls and the ceiling. And that's awesome, you yeah. know? And there's, I think there's a really great way to marry visual effects and practical effects in those realms to the point of what you're talking about, invisible effects, mm -hmm. finding that balance. And in that instance, you know, we would probably be hired to remove all the wires, right? Remove all the harness rigging so that it looks like they actually are, but you do still have them running towards camera uh, in the set, you know, yeah. in costumes. So you kind of still get that realism um, without the trade-off of still seeing the wires, if you will. Yeah. I definitely want to continue this conversation in, but I want to get it from your perspective as someone working in this industry. Uh, but First and foremost, I want to just talk about like, it's one thing to look at films and go like, oh, I love this. You know, a lot of people love movies, but the idea of going into it as a career is something that doesn't even cross people's mind. You know, it's, it's, and it's sad, I think, because typically it's like, oh, that's great. You love movies. Like, 
what law school are you going to go to? <laughs> you know? So like, so um, what medical school are you going to? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Like be a doctor. did you have people pushing you and saying like, this is a viable career path? Was it something where you saw it as a viable career path or is that something that came down the road? Yeah. Well, I mean, I got my start late despite still being a relatively young man myself at 31. Um, it wasn't really until I was like 23, 24 that I like really pursued film at least from an educational standpoint uh i had a brief stint as an emt for a fire department as a volunteer i'd also co-owned a business that was a catering and delivery business that did alcohol infused cupcakes which is a whole other crazy aspect of my life Uh, i can make a mean cupcake that might get you drunk um but despite that i didn't want to do that for the rest of my life and so i'm like well i need something stable something that's going to really pay the bills so i'll get into film and uh, so clearly uh, joking because it's a very risky business to get into. But at the time, I already had an associate's degree. And so what I got a lot when I was at ASU film school was from my family and friends like, well, at least you have an associate's degree, right? Like, at least you have that to fall back on. And even when I was in film school going for a bachelor's degree, and I ended up subsequently dropping out and going into visual effects school instead for a certificate later on getting my bachelor's degree. But even then... They're like, well, at least you got an associate's degree. And then even when I got my first job, like professional gig, and I actually had like was working on major movies, they're like, well, at least you still have. I'm like, dude, I'm actually working like steady work. Yeah, I got a right. one year contract. I'm working on Justice League for crying out loud. Like, like, yeah, but, you know, like, you know, I don't know how long that's going to last, you know, right. well, at least you got something to fall back on. Like, yeah. it's good. You're hot now. So you definitely have the naysayers for sure. When you mentioned film school. Was that something that you think? I mean, do you look back and go like, that was a great choice or was it something? Cause there's some people that go like, oh, it's film school was a waste of time or it, it slowed me down or it, you know, or do you think it was a, a good option for you at the time? Like, do you, do you regret that? Do you think everyone should do it if they want to get into it? What's your kind of approach? I there? don't know. You know, the thing is like nowadays there's so much at your fingertips, right? Mm-hmm. There's so many online educational options that you have that can give you a lot of the same if you're willing to put in the work, because again, it's work, right? Just because you're yeah. doing it online doesn't mean you don't have to put the hours in, right? To perfect anything, you got to put the hours in. So, uh, or to just get better. I will say a- ASU Film School is a great program, uh, Arizona State University. And I do have a lot of love for that school, but the way that they had set it up, I already had an associate's degree and they still wanted me to go for three years, which is a lot of money tuition wise. I'm mm-hmm. like, dude, I already have an associate's. Why am I doing three years instead of just the you know courses? And, um, and so I ended up dropping out because I'm like, I don't want to be a PA getting people coffee with this much debt, you know, cause yeah. ultimately that was realistically what was going to happen with the goal that I, was, I had in mind for myself and working my way up. And so, you know, get touching on people that had influences on me. Kevin Smith is a huge influence on me, uh, both in his career and just his movies, but also literally I would say is responsible for kind of getting me into the business. Cause I was listening to an episode of, uh, I believe the Smodcast. And one of the sponsors happened to be the Dave School, the Digital Animation mm. and Visual Effects School, which I went to subsequently. And I went to because of him. He mentioned that they were sponsored. He had visited the school prior, talked about it in length for like five to ten minutes on the show. And so I looked it up because of him. And then I'm like, oh, man, this is awesome. Like you get yeah. to really experience what it's like to be in a studio yeah. and you really get to learn what visual effects are. And it's only one year. And I started looking at all the job listings and no one required education. Like no one was like, you have to have a bachelor's degree in visual effects because that's not really a thing that really is out there for the most part, unless you're in a trade school. 
And uh, so once I realized that, I'm like, well, A, I'm going to learn everything I need to know. It's going to be in a fraction of the time and also the money. Because we're comparing like 80000 in tuition to 30000 in tuition, not to mention the fact that you would have an in. A lot of people that I was talking to uh, really knew this school, at least from within the industry. So you would have the networking to kind of help get your foot in the door. Because as you know, it's not just being able to do the job, but sometimes there is an, an aspect of who you know. Yeah. Um, so- Yes, I, I think there's a lot to be said about going that route. I think you meet a lot of really great like-minded people that can be friends for a long time. And I did the same. I have a lot of really great friends that I went to college with um, at Dave's school that I'm still friends with to this day. Um, but, you know, it gives you that foot in the door. You know, sometimes just having in and again, at a fraction of the price and time, it's a one year program. I think now it's like a year and three months. But regardless, like that's not much. And if you want to just get into the business as an artist, that is a viable option. And then obviously there's other schools like Noman, SCAD, for instance, uh, the Savannah College of Art and Design in Georgia um, has a more traditional, you know, bachelor's, master's degree option as well, but they're well known. So if you have that on your resume, not a lot of experience, but you have a decent enough reel, it'll get you an interview as a junior artist. So that can be really beneficial. But honestly, if you have a banging reel and you just did like uh, tutorials on like FX PhD or even LinkedIn Learning, now that they've merged with lynda.com, there's a lot of great nuke tutorials if you're looking into compositing. Speaking gibberish to a lot of people that maybe don't know visual effects, but it's software that we use to make yeah. visual effects. But yeah. there's a lot of options you could do on your own too. So yeah, I, I think it has its benefits, but you don't have to do it. What I've noticed, and I'm somebody that went the route of like YouTube tutorials and you know, watching and learning and watching guys like Corridor Digital way back when oh, before yeah, yeah. they really popped off with this new series and you know, going to NAB and like talking with these people and like getting to learn it is like you end up in this weird space where you have a hodgepodge of a billion different skills, but then it's like, I'd be terrified to sit down on this, you know, film where like all these people have this like straight up game plan for this. So describe for me stepping into the professional world for the first time, like, was there anything that surprised you were like, Oh my God, I'm way in over my head (laughs) or did it feel like a fairly natural transition? Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing, right? So the schools I mentioned each have their pros and cons. Mm -hmm. I think the pros that I, at least Dave school that I can talk to as I went there was that it was always a studio environment. So it wasn't like a traditional, like, and these are the books we're going to be reading. And these are the, the lessons that will be better from 20 years ago, you know? Yeah. yeah, Right. Yeah. It's like, and this is when we had a machine that was the size of this table. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, no. So it was more like, I'm going to teach you the skills in a day and you've got the rest of the week to figure out how to get this model done. Or you've got the rest of the week to get this shot. Like you're, oh, and you're also using the same shot tracking software that a lot of the studios are using or some form of it. So you're already used to kind of like, this is my deadline. This is how I'm going to submit it. This is how it's being tracked. So you're already kind of getting used to that flow instead of being in the traditional class setting. So that helped me out a lot because when I went to MPC Vancouver, Uh, I started in the MPC Academy. That's how they used to start. I think it's now been rebranded Technicolor Academy. And even then, I don't know that it's around yet. I mean, MPC Vancouver is not even around anymore. Um, But yeah, so you would go into this program for three months and they'd really get you up to speed. And they were really honestly taking juniors and putting them at mid-level with the amount of additional tutorials that you were getting and all that education, you were able to tackle a lot more work than your traditional junior artist would be able to tackle. And it was a lot, but honestly, being in that really intense environment uh, at Dave school really kind of prepped me to be able to, you know, blossom in that environment and not get crushed under the pressure that was there. But as far as like uh, things that threw me for a loop was freaking Linux, my guy. 
Uh, so there's not a lot of studios that do it, but there are definitely some that still operate on Linux. Uh, and I didn't never use that before. Mm-hmm. So the idea of like writing code just to open a folder, I'm like, what the hell is even happening? Like I, yeah. I know how to comp. I don't know how to find my comp because I don't know how to write the code to find my folder. Uh, later on, I, it really scared me because I was like, oh, my God, dude, like I know I can do the work, but I don't know that I'm going to be able to learn Linux. Mm-hmm. Uh, it ended up being great once I learned it and I'd have all my little terminals open and I could you know, shortcut stuff very easily. Uh, but that definitely threw me for a loop. And again, that's not a constant thing. Like a lot of people are on Windows. Uh, if you're in production like me, it's mostly a MacBook. But um, but yeah, it definitely threw me for a loop. I'm like, I can do the artwork, but I can't operate my computer. So. Yeah, that's a, that's a little bit of a problem for sure. <laughs> um, yeah. So your your first two credited uh, jobs, I'm sure you worked on a lot of projects uh, in the uncredited space and, and working on little pieces yeah. of things here and there. But first two credited is The Strain, which is TV series, obviously. Um, and then uh, Justice League, a little movie that uh, nobody's really heard of, you know, Dude, um, they lit DVDs on fire pre <laughs> Zack Snyder. And that hurt, man. I'm like, it's one thing to hate a movie you worked on. It's another thing to like publicly light it on fire yeah. on Twitter. I'm like, Jesus Christ, man. Well, well I, I want to talk about that for sure. But but I'm curious, like the TV world in the movie world right yeah. now we're seeing in a time and you've worked on. I mean, you've got a Picard poster behind you. I mean, you've worked on some shows that have incredible incredible effects i mean like i was re-watching smallville a couple years ago and i was like man that show looked good at the time but now you're watching like you watch the kenobi series you're like oh, man yeah. this looks like a star wars movie but it's for tv um you know what was it like working stepping into the tv world with tighter time restrictions but expectations yeah. of higher quality effects and then having a movie like what was the difference in pressure time like ability to to feel like, okay, this is something we can actually accomplish. Yeah, man, it's brutal for sure. Like the main difference is that in film, you've got a team, uh, teams usually, mm-hmm. right, of diff- different departments. Uh, TV, uh, The Strain was an interesting one because I got brought on initially more in a supportive role to do kind of like the grunt work, like rotoscoping, painting, you know, stuff like that. Again, rotoscoping being like, hey, we didn't have a green screen for this. So I need you to literally cut this person out frame yeah. by frame. Obviously, there's ways to interpolate the, the plate so you don't have to do that, but um, or paint out the crew as we've touched on. Yeah. So that's what I started off as. And then I got some actual comp shots and we were getting CG elements. Some of my shots were where they've got these really disgustingly awesome tongues that come out in the strain mm-hmm. and they get you. So it's not a traditional vampire, but it's more alien-esque. Uh, and so that's awesome. And But all of that has all these different layers that you've got to composite in to make it look as realistic as possible with the end goal of making it look as though they actually shot it for real. That's the goal, at least with most live action. Um, and so that was really cool. So that was a learning curve for sure. And what I noticed is there's this great scene where, and I don't know that I probably should mention this, but that show's been off the air for long enough. It's, it's, it's old can it's old hat, if you will now, but yeah, so we got this scene where basically there's this gnarly explosion. This dude basically sacrifices of, I got this grenade, boom, body parts everywhere, heads everywhere. And, uh, and so there's like this scene where these vampire heads are falling from the sky and little smoke trails are, are behind them and everything. And it was lit for daytime. And we picked this up like NPC Vancouver was not like NPC in general, almost only did film feature work. Mm-hmm. They did not do TV work. Their sister studio, Mr. X did all the TV work. Uh, and they've obviously worked on Vikings, other major shows as well. 
And so we got this as a 911. And so when we got it, like, look, you don't have access to the lighting team. They're not going to be able to relight this. So these elements, these heads that were lit for like a daytime scene, you have to just figure that shit out and no. make it look like it's nighttime and color correct it as best you can without breaking the, the footage. Uh, so that was fun. So sometimes that happens because it's a tight time schedule and you don't yeah. have time to send it back to the proper department. That happens a lot with comp in general. They're always like, oh, we'll fix it down the road. We'll fix it down the road. Then it gets to comp. You're like, cool, this movie is due in like two months. So uh, I guess we're just doing this now. Or it's due in two weeks. I mean, that's happened too. Um, but yeah, the, the time restrictions are intense. You don't have as much department support um, when you're on a TV show. And the, honestly, it's really the time. But I don't know. I, you get creative. You, you, it sounds terrible, but you steal a lot from other comps. Like it, once you've figured out like a per, like a, the perfect setup for that potential, like if it's something that's repeating a lot in a series, you're kind of publishing that as a, a tool or a group that other people can pull and tweak to their shot <laughs> to kind of save time. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it can be brutal. I mean, Picard season one, I think for our studio, and we had like 40 or so artists on it at Crafty Apes VFX, had about 1100 plus shots for mm -hmm. the first season, which is insane. Yeah. Like that's a lot of work. And I mean, they, they're all like motion graphics or split cons because if you've seen Picard season one, the captain has all this AI that's himself. So we are basically cutting different pieces of footage where you've got him with a stand in and then replacing the stand in with himself doing the other role and making it all look seamless. And that's constantly happening. There's a bunch of holographic displays that are going on that are linked to him or the ship. And then there's all the rule sets mm -hmm. like, well, they don't have them on unless they're sitting down at the council. Then it pops on like all these things you have to be monitoring um but yeah and it's yeah. tough and it's a lot of shots and it's a very tight schedule you mentioned obviously picard you mentioned the vitriol for justice league so like you've worked you know you're you're working in a mix of invisible and visible stuff that people are nitpicking i mean you look at something like justice league every single frame of that movie got you know ripped to shreds and and examined um what was the process like working i have to imagine like that being one of the first things that you're working on is super exciting out of the gate. Um, what was the, what was the process of working on that? Like, and then what was the, uh, after putting all that work in seeing the kind of response to it, uh, what was that like that experience of seeing like the toxic fandom thing happen? Yeah. I mean, it was, those are the dark times. Uh, no, honestly, it was, it was a really tough time in my career. If I'm being frank, I mean, hmm. um, it was my first professional gig ever. I had to leave my home country of the U S move to Canada, which is very familiar, but different in a lot of ways. And I had no family and we're working these crazy ungodly hours, which is very common to VFX. And, you know, on justice league, I, I do want to point out, like I wasn't doing artist work on justice league in particular, mm -hmm. like I was on the strain. It was more stereo packaging. So again, that was a movie that was going to be released in 3D for theater uh, and subsequently potentially for film for 3D televisions. And so what happens is you get these massive scripts that we need to send to a stereoscopic vendor that's going to actually convert it to 3D. Mm. Um, and so you have to condense all that stuff down to like maybe you've got... 2000 nodes across three different scripts and you got to condense it down to like 30 little nodes and make sure that everything fits perfectly. Right. It's very grunt work. It's very tedious, but it's great as an, a junior because you really get to see how everyone's doing all the work. And also there's a lot of problem solving involved. So I was kind of on that. And then I also ended up kind of coordinating loosely. That's my first experience in production was coordinating the team of artists that were handling the stereo packaging, but it was a lot of work, man. And it was pretty brutal. And obviously at the time I was, was getting a lot of pressure of like what's going on in the movie you know they shot they reshot some stuff can you tell us anything and mm -hmm. obviously i can't say anything because i want to keep my job and i don't want to lose everything um 
And so it was a lot of work seeing the movie come out and seeing the fan base like that was pretty brutal. I'm not going to lie. Like it, it definitely hit hard. I've worked on a lot of movies since, and they're not all winners. You're not always going to get the perfect job, right? Yeah, right. You, you find what's interesting about it to you and you kind of latch onto that so that you enjoy working on it. Um, but yeah, it sucked, man. Like it really sucked. I, at the time was very excited to be on Twitter. I would live tweet when the strain was, uh, you know, airing and it was really exciting to just see the fans and especially them react to certain shots that I had worked on was really cool. And then when justice league came out, delete Twitter and hide in a bunker. Dude, it was yeah. like, yeah, I mean, like, honestly, I took a little bit of a break, especially yeah. when I saw that one of literally a guy like, I hate this movie so much. I'm lighting it on fire. I'm like, Hey, thanks for your business though. Cause you still bought the movie. So, Hey, you know, awesome. We made some money off of this, but also, you're lighting it on fire, which is brutal. Also, at that time, and this is kind of the dark side of VFX a little bit, was the the instability, as I talked on, right? I joked about, like, oh, I wanted something stable. VFX isn't stable at all. I mean, especially as an artist, you're working on anything from a two-week contract, three-month contract, one year, whatever, six months. And then maybe if we like you, we'll extend you. So oh. you're always constantly having to have the next job lined up. And during this time when Justice League released and I'm dealing with all the fan feedback of everyone hating this movie that I worked on and I was so excited to work on, especially as a DC fan, uh, we're going through massive layoffs at MPC Vancouver. Uh, and there was a whole restructuring going on where a lot of the, the work was being transferred to a different studio. So there wasn't a need for as many people in that studio. And like my department went down from like 100 people to six. So it was like every other week there was two meetings, a meeting where you're staying and a meeting where you're going. Wow. And so that was really terrifying, you know, and it, and again, it's like I don't have hard feelings to MPC. I loved my time there. It was super fun living downtown in Vancouver, partying with everybody. There were so many great people that I worked with and the management there at the studio was fantastic. But from a business standpoint, it definitely opened my eyes to what's possible and what could happen. And honestly, I did fine. Like they extended me. Like I survived my one year contract. Mm -hmm. I was one of the six remaining. I turned it down because I got into and decided to pursue production instead. Um, but it was still super stressful because you're working these crazy hours. But then also like, hey, this week, are we going to have that meeting that we keep having? And am I going to be in the right meeting? Or am I going to be in the meeting where like, hey, don't go back to your desk? You know, so that was kind of intense man to work under that kind of pressure and then on top of everything going on there to have also like the movie that you worked on just totally getting ragged on hardcore online definitely didn't add to it it was a really rough time for sure right well, well like you mentioned like uh stability is not what comes to mind when you think about the film industry at all but especially vfx and and this is something that i want to talk to you about because obviously we are in an age now you know i i think of it you know, for me, it was never effects, but like having access to cameras, like I'm very lucky. I was born at a time where there was affordable digital cameras you could yeah. test out. You know, you hear stories from early Hollywood. It's like I had a rich uncle who had this very expensive camera that he didn't care about and I got to use it or, you know, or some dentist was kind enough to let me borrow some money to buy a camera. Like we have this unprecedented access, you know, now you can watch tutorials and uh, you know, you can watch these guys create this stuff in their garage with a cell phone and a green screen. Like there's a lot of access, which also means there's a lot of people flooding into each of these spaces. There's a For lot sure. of competition we're seeing now, you know, you probably, you know, more than I do, like the, you see VFX shops open and close seemingly every month. Um, you know, how has that really 
developed over your career? Have, how have you seen the industry deal with this new influx of people interested in it? Um, and, you know, do you think this is stabilizing anytime soon? Uh, well, man, that's a big old question yeah. with not <laughs> unpleasant answer. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, obviously, I've been very fortunate in my career because I've worked at like bigger studios like NPC yeah. Vancouver, obviously owned by Technicolor, who's been around forever. Yeah. Um, just a little company called Technicolor. Yeah, a little Technicolor, you know, no big deal. Um, and then I've also worked at smaller studios like Falcons Creative Group and Themed Entertainment. Um, and then I've worked at places like Crafty Apes, which has a very big reach, but smaller in size, like, you know, 50 to 60 people each location, but a lot of locations. So I've seen it from every angle and I've seen the amount of work they're able to bring in and what that means for the artists. Um, you know, where I'm working right now, you know, that's another one where, you know, some of the, I wouldn't necessarily, I don't want to get too into the weeds on the business side of things where I'm working now, but just in general, you know, you've got your large studio, your medium studio, uh, and your more boutique studios. And the boutique studios are interesting right now because if they can figure out a way to make it work, they've got a lot more options available to them since the pandemic because you can do remote work, right? Mm -hmm. So they can figure out the infrastructure. It can be really awesome because A, you don't have to worry about space uh, for where they're going to work because they can work from home. Um, and you also have access to people that maybe you don't live in your state can work mm -hmm. for you, right? There's a lot that goes involved in that with tax incentives and film offices and stuff like that. Um, because even though we're working remotely, like for instance, if it's a company that or a production company, let's say Sony is doing a movie yeah. and they want a California tax incentive. Well, if you live in New Mexico and you're working for a California studio, that doesn't really help them, right? Because they need, even though you're working remote, you have to be in California mm -hmm. in order for that project to qualify for a tax incentive. So there are still restrictions like that. Um, but I do think you have a lot of options as a freelancer where you could work a lot of different studios without having to ping pong around and literally move all the time because of remote work. So there's some stability in that. I think right now what we're seeing is a huge uh, shortage of artists, honestly. Hmm. I'm a producer. So a huge part of my job, obviously, alongside budget, schedule, managing my team, as well as interfacing with the client is staffing my shows, right? I got to make sure I got enough artists for whatever we, work we've got coming in. Okay, we've got new work coming in we didn't plan on. I got to make sure I got people to do this. So staffing is a huge part of it. And right now what happened is there was a lot of freelancers that wanted those cushy stash, staff positions, but mm -hmm. maybe they couldn't move to San Francisco. Maybe they couldn't move to other places. And so companies really scooped these people up because like, hey, this guy we've always wanted could just work there. We didn't have to worry about relocation fees. They move them out here. I have to worry about any of that. We can just set them up over there. We're good to go. And so you're seeing a lot of companies kind of start to have other, you know, taxable locations pop up, even though they may not have an office there where they can build there. Um, so a lot of people got their dream job and working on their dream project. And also if they didn't get that, they at least got a really good staff position, which is really hard to come by as an artist. Yes. Um, and so what that means now is if you work in a freelance market where it's like, well, I only need people for two weeks or I only need people for a month or two months or whatever, it does become a lot more challenging because really recruitment now has become passive candidates to use mm -hmm. some of the inter inside lingo there as a recruiter. Um, you have to pulling people from a job they already have. They're not actively looking because there's just not enough talent out there. Hmm. Um, there's talent out there. Don't get me wrong. Like there's still a lot of people looking for work, obviously, but you know, I just, I feel like to find the talent that you want, a lot of them got scooped up. Yeah. Uh, and so it's made it really challenging for com companies that do work on a freelance market to hire someone for two weeks 
when they've got a staff position. They're not going to bounce for a two week contract and leave a staff position. So that that's that's hard. Um, but I do think that there's a lot of options for junior artists because, like I said, they can work remotely. For me, my first gig was in Canada. I had to move to Canada. Granted, MPC pulled out all the stops and really helped make sure that happened for me and make sure it was smooth sailing as far as my visas and relocating there. But that's a lot to ask of someone, especially if you're a junior artist who's young and maybe not as experienced or mature enough to really handle what that means. Like, dude, I got to get no social security number. I got to yeah. establish myself. Um, well, now you don't have to do that. You may be able to work from Florida. You could work from mm-hmm. I literally live in North Carolina right now. Uh, despite looking like I'm in a studio, this is my home office and I work in film. Like I never in a million years thought that I could live in a rural town, the new Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. work and work, you know, and I just travel to set when they need me. They fly me out. I'm on set. I come back. I work from here most of the time, you know, um, it's nuts. It's crazy. It's changed things significantly. Yeah. The pandemic. Right. Right. And absolutely. I feel like that's going to continue moving forward to your question as far as like balancing out. But I do feel like there's, potentially going to be a shortage of work coming. I feel like there was a huge influx of backed up material because people weren't filming. And now we're kind of starting to get back to the normal flow of things where it's a little bit more seasonal, but there will always be work for me. Is some of the issue, like any mentioned is people looking for work, but then finding the people you actually need are the best of the best. Do you feel like there's a lot of people trying to step into the industry prematurely? Like they don't have the experience or the, or the knowledge that they need to be able to keep up with, the requirements of the gig. Like if someone's listening, I mean, if you want to pivot this to a practical advice question, if someone's listening and saying like, I'm really interested in BFX, I've been learning, I've been, you know, watching everything I can consume about it. Am I ready to step into this? Like, what should they have in mind? What should they be prepped for before meeting with someone like yourself and trying to get staffed on these jobs? A good reel is, is key right now. <clears throat> um, for someone who doesn't have experience, your reel is everything. Someone who has experience, like it's I it's funny, you know, we talk about like, oh, this is my reel or this is my resume. This is my resume. This movie right here, this TV right here, the other posters I have, that's mm-hmm. my resume now. People don't really care necessarily about like what I they they're like, oh they worked on these movies, so clearly they're capable, right? So it's a little bit easier to get your, at least to get an interview. You still got to win them over in that interview. And that's not easy because you got to fit their company culture. You got to feel like you're going to be working crazy hours. That's another thing to prepare for, right? You're not working 40 hours a week. You may be for a while, but you're going to hit a crunch period of anywhere from two weeks to a month. could be three months where you're working like 60 to 80 hours a week or more. Uh, You're getting paid ideally. And you do want to negotiate hourly for sure. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) because you don't want to be staff in that scenario for sure. Um, but it's crazy hours, right? It's a lot expected of you. So because of that, they really want to make sure that that's someone they want to hang out with because they're hanging out with you more than they're hanging out with their family, right? Even if it is in a remote setting, um, because you're in constant meetings, you're constantly talking to these people. So that's something, but the real is everything. If you don't have a resume, right. Uh, or the experience. And I, I really, when I used to do public speaking a lot at universities, the biggest thing that I would always say is cut all the crap. If you've got a 35 second reel, but it's good shit, that's all that matters. Like I got into NPC Vancouver literally with a 35 second reel. It didn't even have anything for my capstone project at Dave's school. It was literally just my own stuff that I did with the knowledge that I learned that I thought was kind of cool and looked different. And that's another thing too, is have original content just because you worked on this really cool film. Dude, I'm telling you right now, especially if you're like looking locally, I guarantee you the recruiter has seen all the different angles of that same exact capstone project from all your, your 
you know, classmates. So if you have something different, that's the same, like, you know, like this is an example of clean plating or a green screen or a phone comp or whatever, that's different. I'm going to be a lot more interested than like, dude, I've seen this damn scene yeah. five different times. Like I don't care. Right. Like it, it burns you out as a recruiter looking for people. Right. Um, and you want to, sh- again, I'm kind of, this is like, if you want to get in the business, I guess, t- hot tips, if you will, at least speaking from a compositing standpoint, um, and I can speak to production too, but do stuff that you're going to be doing. Like you may want that super sexy shot with this full CG monster that looks okay, but it's cool looking. Like, I don't care about that. Like, that's awesome. As a junior artist, you're probably not going to be doing that. What you're going to be doing is car comps where there's green screen you got to put a plate behind to make it look like they're driving. That's, that's something that's practical. You'd be doing a lot of rotoscoping, which you can't really demonstrate that, but you could show like uh, you could show it in your breakdowns though. Like if you do a lot of stuff where you're cutting people out and you didn't have green screen and putting them in and showing that your rotoscoping is clean and doing that, that's helpful. Painting out rigs, painting out crew, painting out cars, like stuff like, like there's so many period piece films that are coming out now and they don't remove everything from the street. Like, it's not like, cool, the street pole, got to get rid of that. Like, they're just going to paint it out because that's way easier to do than to structurally change a street that they've got permits for, right? Uh, I mean, that happens, but it's easier to paint it out. Yeah. So demonstrating those core skills in a reel is a lot more helpful. Screen replacements. I, I mean, every time you see a screen, for the most part, uh, it's a green screen or the screen's off and we're digitally replacing it, be it a, a TV, a, a laptop, a phone, whatever. So those are practical things. Things that would help get you a job and again if you've only got like five or six and it's a le- less than a minute long that's great because i don't want to see your shitty work because it's going to make me question your good work no. uh, and that sounds terrible but that's that's real mm-hmm. um i don't know but yeah i mean it's a fun business i highly recommend doing it like i said there's so many options now you can look especially as an artist that there's remote positions you can literally on linkedin right now look up like compositor and select remote and boom, now you can apply to all these studios. It doesn't matter where you live because they're remote. You know, like mm-hmm. that's great as someone who's starting off. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunities there. The one downside, I think, that junior artists are going to have, res- regardless of the the specific skill set, is the mentorship. This is something that we struggled with a lot in trying to foster and maintain, especially when I started up the location for crafting Albuquerque. We had a lot. We had some senior artists. We were hiring a lot of junior artists because of, to be creative. We had to hire New Mexico locals. There wasn't a lot of super amazing, you know, artists there because it just wasn't a scene. So we were hiring a lot of college grads, and we needed to really get them up to speed. And traditionally, ideally, in like a traditional studio sense, you would pair them up next to a senior artist. They have questions. They can kind of bounce them off. They can work together as a mentorship, uh, you know, apprentice, mm-hmm. and that's great. And it's awesome when you're working remotely. That's not as easy. Yeah. You know, like you can't just be like, hey, can I show you this one thing? And do you're like an awkward like, call where it's like, yeah, you're hey. like, I'm going to call him on Google Hangouts and his video's not on and mine's on. Should I turn mine on? It's just, it's just yeah. awkward. You know, uh, it's not undo, it's, it's not like impossible. And obviously we can screen share and stuff like that, but it's just not as, you know, in the moment and fluid, I think. But it's still, I think it, it, it'll impact, but it's not like devastating. But sure. I miss that. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I went on a rant. I'm sorry, man. (laughs) You're good. You're good. Um, No, I, I, I just hired an editor working and we do like a lot of, we do more of like an agency model doing like social content and stuff and doing edits and repurposing content. And there's like these really simple things that, and again, I think this is one of those funny things. Like I'm a, someone that learned on my own for the most part, I learned by doing, 
the guy that I hired, you know, is where I was like two, three years ago, you know, and he has learned by doing. And so there's like these little things, like a lot of them are even like preference things or little tricks or, or something and going back and forth over Slack or over an email going like, try this, do this. And then like you hop on and try to screen share. You're like, like it can be something simple. It's like, do this blend mode instead, or try this thing. That's like secondhand knowledge to you, but it's one of a million variations. It's not the wrong oh, yeah. way to do it. It's just like, man, I wish I could get in a room with you for three days and just like, watch you do it. <laughs> so I I'm can like show you, you this. Um, so yeah, I, t- I definitely get where you're, where you're coming from on that. Um, before we transition here into the random round, I know you mentioned some things that like people have this idea of what they're going to do. Like you've obviously worked and I watched your, I watched you one of your reels, you know, like doing fixing hair and 50 shades oh free, yeah. you know, and like That's doing, cold, <laughs> doing all this kind of stuff, you know, or, or working in the background on, on some of these projects. Um, if you had free range, like where you could say like, Hey, you get to do this on a project, like, do you have like a dream kind of situation where it's like, I would love to get to work on this type of scene or do this type of, of film? You know, if I had total creative freedom to go at it, uh, what would that yeah. kind of look like for you? Yeah. Digital hair is not one of them. I, <laughs> I can imagine dad, that. Yeah. yeah. My dad's a hairstylist. So that was mm-hmm. a real laugh in the family. Like, hey, I'm in the family business for at least this project because I'm doing nothing but hair digitally. Yeah. Um, yeah, not a dream. Uh, definitely not modesty cleanup either because there's a lot of that in that movie, as you can imagine. I mean, I love hero shots. Hero shots are the stuff that gets on the reel, right? That's that mm-hmm. sexy stuff that you see in the trailer. Like Game of Thrones, man. I, I, I'm like, say what you will about how it ended, but yo, those dragons look so real. I'm like, I guess we just have dragons and we figured out a way to train them. Yeah. So, because they look so damn real and so good. Like, I would kill to have shots like those. They're really challenging because obviously you've got a lot of 3D elements at play that you're mixing in with the plate and making sure the tracking's going well. But especially on projects like those, you definitely have the department to help you, right? Like you've got a tracking department, whether it's outsourced or internal, but someone's providing the tracks, you're kind of piecing it all together. But man, having shots like those, that's awesome. I mean, I love any kind of big explosion. That's a lot of fun. I had a couple of those. Um, I like gnarly stuff. I don't know if that's just because of my stint as an EMT, but like, you know, I mean, it's cool. Like, it, I know it's not real. So, I mean, I've seen it for real. So I'm good there. But, you know, making it fake is fun too, you know, and like just doing really crazy gross out stuff that, and, but, you know, to that point though, like as cool as all that stuff is, like, I really like uh, invisible effects, man. Like, and they're the more simple stuff sometimes. But like, I love it. Like to the point of like what we talked about a lot, a while back here, where it was like, oh man, I can't believe that that was a visual effects or whatever, yeah. like something that really blew my mind. Uh, I remember seeing it was Stargate Studios, infamous for working on Walking Dead in the earlier seasons. Mm-hmm. And they've worked on a lot of other stuff as well. For instance, the one I'm going to mention right now is Ugly Betty. So when people think visual effects, are like that is a dinosaur and that doesn't exist. Yep. So that's a visual effect. Gotcha. That's a spaceship. That's not real. You know, those are blasters. Not real. Whatever. So that's obvious. The invisible stuff, though, man, like that, that's what always trips my family out. Like, what? And uh, there's a great shot or a scene from Ugly Betty where she's coming out of a hotel and she stumbles into a phone booth and falls on the ground. She's coming out of a hotel in New York City. You're on a New York City uh, sidewalk in, in downtown. You know, you got cars going by, people walking, phone. She hits a phone booth. Boom falls over actually i don't even use a phone but it was like a like a bus stop whatever yo i saw the breakdown from stargate studios when i was applying 
it blew my mind. It was all green screen. It was a green screen studio. And so obviously there was still like a, a, a bus stop, like structurally, but it was a green box essentially that she fell into. So it was like all fake, like literally mm-hmm. all fake, except for the people walking, but like the sidewalk was fake. The cars going by was fake. The whole New York city was fake. The whole building she just came out of was fake. Like that blew my mind. I'm like, Holy shit. Like even a show like ugly Betty, which you're not thinking visual effects, mm-hmm. Uh, was doing stuff like that. And probably for cost-effective reasons, it's really hard to shoot in New York City, especially uh, permit-wise alone, but obviously the cost implications as well. But yeah, I mean, they just did it in green screen and it blew my mind. It's crazy. I got to ask you this. So one of the things people reference is like, you know, because there's so many VFX heavy projects, like sometimes the quality of the VFX, you know, there's a lot of things at play here too. Like we have gotten better at identifying it. So like our mind is not blown the same way when we see something we're watching a lot of films like superhero films where we're seeing things that aren't natural to real life. So it stands out more. Um, But it seems like there's been like, if you, you know, I don't want to pick one specific movie to rag on, but like, if you look at reviews for, you know, certain MCU films, you know, people go like, how do they have 250 bajillion dollars into this project? And then, you know, this looks like not as good as Jurassic parks, you know, this shot. Why do you think we're seeing more VFX that don't seem to, I guess, hold up when we're watching like newer projects that have a lot of money dumped into them, big teams, a lot of experience. Like, why do you think, audiences are seeing the cracks and seams a lot more it seems like with newer releases well i think you kind of definitely hit the nail on the head as far as like there's more exposure right like Mm -hmm. in the 80s and 90s visual effects was not really like it was kind of obvious too but like jurassic park was like a magical movie like we're like Mm -hmm. i don't know how they did this like yeah I don't even. It's magic. I, don't, I probably don't yeah. even own a computer myself at that yeah. time. Yeah. Uh, let alone, am I thinking that's fake? That's digital. Yeah. Like that. That's an insane. Op, that that's just magic, right? Movie magic. Yeah. Nowadays, people do freaking TikToks, man, and they're like, "Yo, I want to add an explosion in the background." Boom, explosion done. Cool. I did AI <laughs> tracking on my phone. Explosion back there. Yeah. Like awesome. Like so, I feel like that is a big. Uh, curse, I think a little bit, right? Because mm-hmm. they're ha- like people kind of have a, they feel like they know what they're talking about. Yeah. They at least ways. can say like, oh, that was green screened. You know, they'll throw out <laughs> like some green basic thing. Is. Yeah. They know what a green screen is, right? I think that's a huge thing. I think shows like VFX Artists React, you mentioned Corridor Digital. Mm-hmm. I freaking love those guys. Uh, they're fantastic. And what they've been doing for the VFX industry has been awesome. Yeah. Really shining a light on a job that's really hard to explain to most people. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's really cool. But that also kind of shows people like, you know, oh, well, I didn't. And they they start to become like little, you know, armchair experts, if you will. Mm-hmm. Also another great podcast, but nonetheless. <laughs> um, but that, that yeah, <laughs> I mean, uh, but for real, though, like it, it, it. But I think they do a good job of explaining why it's good or why it's bad. Right. And that's what I love about that show. It's like they don't just say it's good. They don't just say it's bad. They actually show you with a mm-hmm. demo of like what's going on and what what makes it great or bad. But um, I think also there's just so much volume, right? So I think like all art, it's unfinished, right? Like Mm -hmm. to a degree, especially in the business, right? You only have so much time. How many MCU movies are they releasing? How many MCU TV shows are they releasing? I mean, shit, I just made a list for myself because I'm trying to catch up. You know, I'm like, there's like WandaVision. There's Falcon and the Winter Soldier. There's like all these different shows, all these different movies. It's a lot of work. And honestly, there's only... Like they try to stick with a lot of the same studios, but there's only so many people, right? So 
your teams tend to get a little smaller potentially or they get more stretched out or they just don't have enough time. And so that's a huge aspect of it, right? Because in order to have that volume, you've got to do more studios. And honestly, I would argue that there's probably less studios now and less artists, at least active now than there were at the start of the pandemic, like pre pandemic, because there were a lot of studios that shut down completely. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so there's that 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 affects the market right and there's just so much work going on that like it's insane i mean i know studios right now where there's producers that are on like five or seven shows at a time like that's a lot to keep track (laughs) of right stuff's gonna fall through the cracks you're trying the best that you can but it's just nutty man like there's just so much work going on so i think there's a lot of that the volume of work and the time frame that it needs to be done i think is usually a pretty good reason why something may fall off the curve right um but I mean, it also depends on who's in charge, who's at the who's at the helm of it too. They may just have a cre- a different creative vision where they're like, "Hey, you know, I kind of want it to look a little hokey or a little bit. I don't want to say hokey; that's a bad word, but like, I want it to look a little bit more uh, hyper stylized or, or yeah. stylized. That's not necessarily realistic. That is going to ping on people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but even when you do realistic stuff, I think as humans, we know what's real, what's not. Like we have we a see very, it every day. We're really, yeah. we're yeah, we're really good at that. So that anytime you try to do hyper-realistic stuff, like for instance, with Star Wars has done this a lot and they've even done it more recently. Yo, real talk, that's a crazy one because Mandalorian, they did that Luke Skywalker bit. Spoilers, yo, if you haven't seen Mandalorian, but that was a while ago. That initial uh, Skywalker bit. And it looked good, but you knew, I'm like, "Mm, well, A, and that's again, one of those things like, A, I know Mark Hamill's not young. Mm -hmm. I know he's old. He looks good, but he's old. Yeah. Uh, and B, like, it just, you could tell, like, you could tell that something was slightly off. Yeah. It's like the Irishman yeah. Saint problem, you know? It's oh good God. work, but we know what Robert De Niro looks like really well because he's in a, a lot of movies. One. Now, yeah. I will say to that point, I believe it was in Boba Fett. They they doubled down. This is like, oh, you like Luke Skywalker? Yeah. I'm gonna give you a whole episode with young Luke Skywalker, and you ain't gonna be able to tell shit. Yeah. And oh my god, dude! Like from literally, like I, it must have been like less than a year in time as far as like advancements. And again, mind you, this stuff is getting worked on, and it usually is done well before it releases. Sometimes it's not. I've and there's an army of episodes. nerds working on it in their basement, fixing yeah. it, sending it to them, going like, yeah. look at this, yeah. do this. Yeah. Yeah. So, but literally that was such a huge change where it's like, Hey, I already know young Mark Hamill's not a thing, but I did not even think about it in those sequences. Cause it looks so good. Mm-hmm. Like it looked so realistic. And again, you're talking about the uncanny Valley, right? Anything that looks almost too real that it does. It seems off yeah. is a very real thing that we fight a lot in visual effects. But yeah, I think when you go down that lane, it, it can be challenging. I mean, I worked on cry macho with Clint Eastwood. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of de-aging going on in that as well. And again, like that's not something like we didn't go extreme. Like he, it wasn't the point was not to go extreme. The point was to make him look more like late seventies instead of like ninety. Really? You know? there, oh, I don't so know. There if was knew. no, yeah, I had no idea. Yeah. Invisible. Yeah, so there was some DH work going on there. Interesting. Um, it wasn't meant to be extreme, you know. I mean, Clint Eastwood's Clint Eastwood, man. The dude's a goat. Like he's good, but there was some work done, and it was a lot more subtle, you know. Um, so I think there's stuff like that that is a little bit more effective, right? Because they're not going too extreme like you're talking about with Irishman, man. Like, you know, De Niro may look like he's 40, but he's still curb stomping that dude like a 90-year-old man would yeah. curb stomp. And he doesn't you know? look like De Niro when he was 40. You know that what I mean? He, yeah. But but yeah, and and yeah, the but it's interesting to see how it develops. I was just curious to know kind of your perspective on that. Um, 
coming from that world. And and I like, it's why I like VFX artists react. It's why I like having conversations like this, because it's easy to be the armchair expert and go like, Oh man, that doesn't look good. You know? And then you like, when you start hearing like cry macho and you start hearing like, Oh, there was de-aging stuff done in that where it's like, I had no idea. Yo, real like, talk. I'm going to talk about that real fast. The freaking <laughs> rooster macho in that movie was like, that was some insane shit. So like, uh, so I don't know if like I know so much weird shit about things like fighting roosters now. Like I'm not like a, I don't do cockfights, um, but you know like there's there's options, right? So roosters have talons. Very famously, if we remember Napoleon, does it have sharp talons or whatever? Like you know like that's a thing. And I didn't even think about this. And so a lot of times, like they either keep the the talons and they sharpen them mm-hmm. for cockfighting, or they cut them off and they uh, they duct tape little metal uh, replacement talons, right? And they fight each other. It's really it's graphic. It's messed up. Cough fighting sucks. Um, but the stunt rooster that they had for the, the production didn't have talents. So for whatever reason, they wanted talents. So like legit, there's like probably 45 or 50 shots where we had to digitally add digital talents to this rooster uh, and properly light them, track them to the actual rooster's legs for every single scene, scene that you see his legs. Um, like just crazy stuff. Like, And I guarantee you, anyone who watched Cry Macho wasn't thinking like, yo, man, those talons. That shit looks fake. Like I know yeah. talons and those talons that ain't real. Uh, but like things like, and I guess to, you know, whatever reason, Clint Eastwood and to the producers, it was a big story point. They wanted him to have actual talents. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. And, and then like in initially they had the metal talents. So we had to remove the metal talents and then add actual talents and like what the initial uh, cockfighting scene. So it was crazy. That's, so it's funny. Cause I yeah, saw your credits and I was like, like, what does cry macho have in it? It's like literally well, just went that, out and shot. <laughs> there's that. There's a lot of uh, like little production fixes, reflections, like little things. There's another one where there was just a lot like like every detective movie. You got to wear those cool sunglasses and drive that super sweet muscle car that's got all the chrome everywhere. Uh, and you know what glass sunglasses and chrome is good for picking up crew uh, in the reflections. And so, yeah, I mean, literally we had to like paint out reflections of crew in almost every single shot with the sunglasses or the the bumpers and stuff because you can see them. Um, there was period work because it was meant to be set in the 90s, although I don't know necessarily that that really came across in the movie, but it was meant to be set in the 90s. So like, for instance, all the freeway signs, they use reflective paint on freeway signs now. This is very common nowadays. That's why when your lights hit them, you see it real easy. But in the 90s, and it's crazy because you can still see this, by the way, they were illuminated with lights under from under underneath, right? And you'll still see them there. They're just not on. Um, so you literally, we had to go through and every time they're driving on the freeway, we had to adjust the freeway signs to look like that dark forest green and give it that like illumination look from underneath so that it looks like it's being illuminated by lights instead of your headlights hitting it. Little things like that. Yeah. Uh, little things. I, ironically yeah. is the name of the movie, but yeah, there's a lot of that. Well, I'll, uh, I'll move us here into our random round. I want to get to a couple, couple answers on these. Uh, I'd like to ask every guest that comes on some of these, oh, some of these questions. Uh, <laughs> All right, let's do this. Usually people's stomach gets in knots. Like, I don't know. I don't know how to choose this. Um, so uh, first, what do you think is the best decade of film history? Really easy question. Really simple. <laughs> yeah. Super simple, man. Yeah. Oh man, that is tough. Um, shit. Yeah, what's your answer, Eric? <laughs> man, so I, I yeah, throw it uh, on you. It's easy to say '80s because that's like where a lot of like just obvious famous pieces are. But 
But I also do kind of agree with Tarantino's take about the eighties being very overly sanitized and fluffy for the most of the decade. Like I think the early eighties, I really like quite a bit. I, I really enjoy the seventies because it's like people breaking all the rules. Like they're, they're able to get away with stuff they were never able to get away with. So I like all the just crazy, ridiculous, you know, approaches to filmmaking. You get like the Toby Hoopers and Texas Chainsaw Massacre and like all these wild movies. I always like when there's a lot of heavily sanitized films and then we get into this crazy, like, okay, we're going to go crazy. You know? So you have like the late nineties going from scream to saw you see now, like you're going from MCU to like, now we're getting blonde, which is going to be like an NC 17. You've got Damien Chazelle trying to push for an NC 17 on his movie. It's like all these guys that are going like, it's time you want superhero movies. We're going to give you this hardcore movie, you know? So I, I love those transitions. Um, Like, and I feel like we're on the cusp of another one of those in rebellion to the kind of superhero uh, PG 13 craze. So I don't know. I like those periods, like early 2000s, the period we're about to go into early 80s, late 70s. You know, you see it from even the, you know, 30s, you know, that period, there was some really crazy experimental stuff happening. So any of those periods, but 70s is probably the safest, safest bet for me right now that I would say. Yeah. I mean, 70s is legit. I mean, there's a great book, Easy Riders, uh, Raging Bulls, right? Mm-hmm. It's a much longer title, but that's that's the easy one if you want to look it up for a good read. But which is also like a lot of like just crazy, intense gossip and behind the scenes of some of the, the biggest movies. But what it really focuses in on is the the rule breakers, right? That up that huge upset in Hollywood with like you know movies like Mean Streets and stuff like that, right? That really were challenging yeah. the the traditional status quo of like this is the formula and this is what works. Um, so I I do really love the seventies. Um, but I also love the nineties because I mean, like I was born in 91 fun fact. Um, and so, but I mean, also you got like Jurassic park came out in the nineties. You're really starting to see visual effects kind of come into its own. Um, I, you know, like obviously like within reason, there's definitely some really bad visual effects in the nineties too, but there's some really cool stuff as well. Mm. Um, so I think from like a career standpoint, like in what like focuses on me, visual effects, I like the nineties. Um, but I love the seventies again for the main reason that like, and I got, I, this is like so anti my career, but like, yo, there's visual effects happening, but it's not like what you're seeing now. Right. It's, car it's, explodes. They blew up a car. They blew up a car, <laughs> yeah. right. Or a miniature, but yeah. yeah, but yeah, they blew it up for real some way. Uh, you know, when you're thinking about compositing and all the different layers and pieces that go on, like they're still doing that and they're still like have like a, you know, like a spaceship hanging on wire over blue screen, but then they're literally using glass to like put in like space, like actual paintings and then layering it physically Mm -hmm. in front of the camera. Like it's just different, you know, it's the same tropes that were present there that are now digital, but it's still Mm -hmm. a lot of the basics. Right. But way harder to do. Well, it's, uh, I think that's why I appreciate it. There there's a great behind the scenes, uh, the James Bond DVD releases had great behind the scenes featurettes and the Moonraker. Like I remember watching, um, Oh, I forget who did the, the effects on it, but he talks about like all the miniatures they had. And then he talks about like, it was like real time compositing. So it's like, so we had to shoot the spaceships and then we would run the film back in the camera and then we'd shoot with the planet there. And then we would shoot back and we'd roll the film back. And he's like, so our, the quality of the film, started getting hurt because we're running it through so many times 
And then if a spaceship would cross in front of one of the people, it would be transparent through them. So we had to make sure everything was flying next to each other. I came up with this idea, which is not a new idea by any means, and that was to wind back in the camera. Shoot elements and then wind back the film in the camera and shoot the element, another element, wind back the film in the camera and shoot another element. And of course we, we started to do this and we all got very nervous. You had to get them all lined up so that none was, were superimposed over another because that would give away the fact that these were shot in separate elements. So we did a few tests and we realized that it was quite a way of actually achieving a fantastic quality. And then he's like, then we had to do, how do we have smoke coming out of these models? So we had a salt shaker that was like pouring salt as it was going up. And it's like, the, it was such, but it's all stuff like now you'd be like, let me throw it in with a blend mode to do this and like crop this out. But it's like, they're messing with actual film, running it through, like there's something cool about it. Meddings must create the contrails of a space shuttle in flight. To achieve this, Derek used salt. We had a very, very small, um, shuttle and it was hollow and we filled it up with salt it was pulled up on wire because all the salt inside it emptied out and gave us this lovely sort of trail which looked like the smoke from the rocket but then it is neat watching you know i, I have a soft spot for the prequels and watching george lucas figure this out you know ilm figuring yeah. out what does this look like you know, and it's fun seeing the holes sometimes and seeing where it doesn't, yeah. you know, doesn't necessarily come together in the best way. Yeah. Um, I mean, dude, literally to that point, working on Star Trek, I worked at Star Trek Strange New Worlds uh, out of our Albuquerque office, which was huge. I mean, I honestly feel like that's the first Star Trek to ever have the New Mexico film office badge at the end hmm. of an episode, which is huge. So that's really cool. And like 80 percent of the work was done by my guys in New Mexico. But one of the things we had to do was look at they the producers and the creatives on Star Trek Changing Worlds. Again, you know, this is a prequel to the original series. We really want to kind of keep some of that aesthetic, but also make it modern, too, without disrespecting that 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 base. Right. Um, and the art of it. And so they're like, well, we need to come up with a transporter uh, and we need to figure out a way to, like, make that look you know, like, what are we going to do with that? And so our team specifically at Crafty, like had to come up with a transporter look for SNW or Strange New Worlds, which is insane. Cause it's like, yo, like I'm a star Wars guy. I've come to really appreciate star Trek, having worked on it for like over three years of my career yeah. uh, in various uh, mediums. But that was insane. And so we were looking at the old footage and being like, damn, like, I think that's like a glitter water trick or something that they're doing. And like, they're really just frame holding these people and they're not moving and they little glitter, 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 boom. Okay. Now we're moving. Right. And like trying to like, how do we replicate this, but make it somewhat new, but also kind of pay homage to like mm -hmm. what this used to look like. And so that was really cool to like, have to really deep dive, like all the old footage and kind of really look at like, okay, this is a different version of that, or this is a different color of the same thing. And like, how would this work? And then try to bring that into, you know, nuke and find a way, or even in Houdini, if we want to do an FX sim type of way of doing it, that would kind of look like it. And it was really cool because once we finally narrowed in and, you know, the executives and creatives, you know, locked in on it, like that was it. And so that got sent to all the other VFX houses that were working on it. And they used that look um, for the transport, which is really freaking cool. It's like kind of yeah. being like, yeah, so we were doing the new lightsabers and we had to figure out what that's going to look like. And so this is the look and we established yeah. so that was really cool. I'm not a lot like it's a little thing. It's not like the coolest thing that we did. But to me, I'm like, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so kind of, again, looking back to history and then trying to replicate it now with modern technology, it was it was interesting for sure. 
Well, with that approach of taking something old and making it new, uh, if you were given the green light to remake any film, uh, what would you choose and why? <laughs> man, no, no, that's a terrible question. I, I'm not answering that. Uh, I would have, oh man, if I could remake any film, man, you really put your guess on the spot, man. That's, that's tough. Uh, oh man. That's why I don't send these to people ahead of time. I like to get them yeah. in the well, hot yeah, seat. Gonna, I'm trying to keep your dead air here alive because <laughs> Lord, I got to think about that. I don't know, man. Uh, I just, you know, I really don't. So like, I, I like again, we're talking about practical effects. We're talking about visual effects, right? The way of the future. And we get a lot of shit being in visual effects because we're destroying jobs and careers because what used to be an actual painting of a mural is now a digital map painting 3D. You know, and it's eliminating jobs. You either adapt or die. And so there's a lot of that going on. And so I do try to like, I always have a respect for the old way of doing things. Um, fuck, man, remake a movie. But and that's the thing is like, it's, I hate reboots. I hate remakes. I really do. Like, I, I I really just don't. It's not something that I'm a fan of. They just did Father of the Bride, and I'm like, and that movie's been remade before, mind you. So it's not yeah. like that's the first. Steve time Martin's his remake, yeah. 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 So, but oh man, remake a movie? Well, you ain't doing Back to the Future at least for a long while. That ain't happening. Which I would never recommend Back to the Future. By the way, I'm just saying. Like, yeah. but that's the thing. Like, you're talking about movies like that. The best approach is typically like what's a movie that had a great premise, but you know, maybe could have gone further or pushed further with, but again, you're Yo, still I got in. this. I got this. I got this. And I love the original. I love the original. So I'm going to put that out there, but a league of extraordinary gentlemen, yo, that is an awesome concept that I, I, I still enjoy it, but like, I would love to see what that looks like now. Like yeah. with what we've got in hand now, as far as visual effects and where we could really push that and you get a different director maybe involved and kind of get a different vision of that story or that base, I think could be really cool. See, yeah, I'm, oh, a, you know I'm, I'm a big fan yeah, of yeah. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Actually, I, I think it's an underrated movie, um, but a lot of that's, I mean, Stephen Summers kind of ruled the 90s and early 2000s yeah, yeah, and yeah. like that vibe was like. I don't, I can't separate nostalgia from <laughs> like, I'm sure like some of the VFX in that movie were cool at the time, but definitely could use a little yeah. uh, work I, over I, now. And it's not really a remake, but I would love to just see a good fantastic four movie, man. Mm. Like, I know that's a lot to ask. I know there's a lot of teasing of it because of certain movies. I'm not going to get too into it for spoilers. Cause that movie's still relatively new. But uh, I mean, now that Marvel studio has access to it as an IP, I would love to see them get involved and actually do like, a really good fantastic four move. I think it'd be really awesome. It's so time. I feel like, I mean, it's time, it's time. Like, and I'm sick of the movie. Like we just did this to keep the license. Cause I really do feel like that is what happened with the miles Teller, uh, fantastic four. I feel like they just did it to keep the license. Yeah. Uh, like, well, we're running out of time. So we got to come up with something. Cause that movie did not make any sense at all. And was a hot mess. Unfortunately, you know, props to everyone who worked on it. Cause look, a lot of people work hard on movies and you know i've been in that that situation where you get a lot you get shit on yeah that movie was tough yeah <laughs> but uh yeah what, um uh, which of your projects do you think is the best representation of you as a creator as a creator mm. Mm. that's oh man <laughs> Woo. Uh, I need like Jeopardy music for these rounds, I think. I swear to God, you do. Well, this isn't live, so you got time. There's still time. We'll see how lazy we'll fix it in post. And editing this, yeah, <laughs> if there's music when I'm talking right now. 
Um, yeah, man, I, there's two that come to mind and I think it's just because of the longevity of the project. So, uh, getting out of film and television, but still kind of in like a entertainment medium. I loved Halo Outpost Discovery, mm-hmm. um, where I worked with 343 and Xbox on a traveling convention that they did. Uh, we did 80% of the media installations at Falcons creative group. There was a whole dome theater show that we did where we basically gave a tour as if you were in a POV of a, a honeybee drone, which was something that we came up with. Like that did not exist. And now it does, which is awesome that that's lore um, where you get to fly through a halo ring and like go through in the inside of it and see all the different species running around in like, I think it was like either 12 or 15 K resolution in this half dome theater. It was awesome. It was super cool. That was really cool. Um, and then I, I, because on that project, I was a post-production coordinator, but also really stepped up because I was a casting director. So mm. I had to do all the one sheets, all the scripts. I had to work with all the talent agencies, all the auditions, and then present that to 343 and the creatives. Um, and then I was also the unit production manager when we were doing live action stuff or voiceover recording sessions. So that was a whole thing. So, and I was in it from beginning to end. And so that was really cool to be, because as an artist, especially as a compositor, you're often coming in at the end of the, the road, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone's done all their stuff for like six months. Now you got two months to make this look perfect, polish it, and then it goes to the theater, which is cool. Cause like once you're done, that's what's on screen yeah. aside from DI and color. So um, to be involved from the early stages is really cool. But the other one I would have to say, and I wasn't necessarily involved all the way to the end because I did end up leaving the, the, the project mid-season, um, was the cleaning lady on mm. Fox. Not It's not like crazy groundbreaking, although I think there were some really creative ways that we did it um, on the show, just like as far as crowd limitations because of COVID and how we were able to crowd tile and make it look like there's this massive party, even though it's really the same 50 extras that are moved around all over the place uh, and changing their, their outfits. So I thought that was really cool, but that was a really cool one because I was involved as a producer for the first time. That was like one of my first associate producer TV shows. Um, And I was involved literally from script phase of the pilot, did the pilot. It got greenlit by Fox and then I was involved for like the first like five or six episodes of the season. So that was really cool to literally see something go from pilot, make it work on the pilot, then kind of go on hiatus for a little bit, then get greenlit and then work on the season. That was really cool to have that kind of ownership and involvement in a project like that was really cool. And we we're the only VFX house uh, working on it at the time. That was really cool too. So we were just doing like everything again, a lot of invisible effects. Yeah, for sure. Screen replacements and location changes to make it look like they were in Vegas. So yeah. yeah. Two more questions. What is a movie that uh, people would be surprised to know that you enjoy? Oh, oh, I like that. I like that a lot. Oh man, I got. I, I'm not too bashful, man. Like I, I like a lot of bad movies. Well, let me rephrase that. I like a lot of. Uh, uh, there are no less pleasures. mainstream movies. <laughs> yeah. There we go. Let's 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 be creative in that. A uh, movie. Oh man, a movie that to be surprised by. Hmm. I'm curious what you, I, I, I know you probably maybe answers, but I am curious what your answer is on this. And that also is buying me a little bit of time, but I'm curious I, what your answer is. I'm not bashful at all. I'm a, I'm eclectic. I believe that there's no guilty pleasures. So I, I enjoy, uh, I enjoy a lot of movies. I think people would be surprised. So like, I'm a, I'm a big horror guy. So like, I love horror movies. I love dark movies. I mean, I like, even when I watch things that are like funny, it's like Jackass, which is like pretty dark, you know? <laughs> so like, you don't, yeah, yeah. there's, there's a lot of stuff like that. Um, I, I freaking love 27 dresses. Uh, I will watch that movie anytime it's on. Um, I love like cheesy rom-coms, like, like where, you know, what's going to happen the minute you start the movie. Uh, I'm into that. Just watch through sex in the city with mm. my wife. I'm all into all that stuff, but uh, 
you know, but I, I'm very eclectic. Like I think all, all film has good films in that genre. So like, I'm pretty, pretty open. Um, yeah. All right. That works for me. I like that. I like that a lot. That has given me an idea. So obviously working in visual effects, a lot of people just assume that like my whole collection is like, you know, oh, visual effects heavy everything. Star right? Wars, like, King Kong. Star Wars, yeah, yeah. right? Clearly you love King Kong and all of its iterations. I mean, I do. It's awesome. Same with Godzilla. But um, I love When Harry Met Sally, kind of sticking mm. in the raw. I mean, that's a very big classic, but like I love that movie. I've seen it a lot. I think it's hilarious. It's definitely a classic for a very good reason. But it's just such an interesting dynamic between obviously, you know, Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan and that. Um, yeah, that's that's one that I like. And I don't think that most people will probably think if I was doing like a top five film list of all time, like that would probably still be on it. Uh, it might actually, you know, it might be like number six, but it'd be close. But I don't think people would expect like when Harry met Sally. Yeah. Dirty uh, Dancing is probably the other one that's in my top five. And uh, I think people would be surprised by it. Cause like full like metal Roadhouse. jacket, then this roadhouse is solid. Yeah. Yeah. Pain don't hurt. You know, it's <laughs> a solid, solid approach. Um, um, last question here. I ask everybody always get different answers. What's the best piece of advice you would give to an aspiring filmmaker who's listening to this? No pressure, but this could change someone's life. Yeah. Jesus Christ. All right. <laughs> like just give up. Don't do it. It's, it's not for everybody and it's not for you. Um, <laughs> I That's wish it. Thank you for coming on. <laughs> uh, yeah. So anyways, it's been great talking with you. No. Um, oh, man. I mean, I've kind of had similar questions before, but I think there's two main things, which maybe the first one's not as well. I think it's it's a big deal, but it's not as big of a deal. Again, we kind of touched on remote, but um, relationships are challenging with this job. OK, whether you're on set or post-production, mm. you're working on godly hours. I have a six year old and uh, my girlfriend and they're amazing and i i really do try now and i'm very very fortunate in my career to be able to spend time with them not work as many crazy hours and be away from them less and less um but starting out it's tough man like i said before i moved i went to school in orlando florida dave school and my first gig ever was in vancouver canada so like that's not easy okay um and when you think about that in combination with a relationship, you really have to think about that. And I know that sounds terrible. I'm not telling you to go break up with your significant other, like your girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever, but really think about that relationship and think how strong is it, you know? And if they say yeah. they're going to support you, they might very well be tested very quickly, you know, because yeah. you may have to like move there or move to New Zealand or move to the UK or wh- wherever there's work. Because look, at the end of the day, when you're going for your first job, you got to be able to go there. And I, the other thing that I would say, in combination with this too is apply for everything because yeah. just because you don't think like dude how am i gonna get to canada man like I, i'm like i got no experience no one's gonna hire i don't i'm not a canadian like dude apply because the thing is you never know what a company will be willing to do for you if yeah. they like you enough right like so i had no experience i, I had some freelance stuff but nothing major going into canada dude they pay for my visa they pay for my airfare they pay for a hotel for me to stay in that literally the living room i honestly i'd say probably the kitchen was the size of the place i ended up with in vancouver uh for two weeks you yeah. know so i could find a place and get squared away they handled like julia roberts and pretty woman yeah i mean they were whining almost exactly Oh my God, it was crazy, except for, you know, I didn't have to put myself out there, although I was working on Fifty Shades and I have worked on a lot of stripper movies. So I don't know, my future might might turn in a certain way. Um, but yeah, man, so I think like really just try for everything because you never know what a company is willing to do, even if you are a junior artist, 
but also really be mindful of your relationships because it can be really impactful. Mm. And, you know, you really want to try to find that ride or die person that's going to support you. Like I'm very fortunate, you know, Jacqueline, my significant other is fantastic. She means the world to me as does our little one, Luca. Um, you know, and the fact that like, if I had to, obviously I'm very much in the mindset of like, I love living in North Carolina, our family's here. Um, but if I had to, like, she would support that. And I know that she would, you know, and there's a lot of regret that happens. Like I had a teacher, this is the last little thing I'll say to this, who straight up in class was like, yo, uh, if you're in a relationship, don't be in one, be single. Like he's a little harsher than me because he got an opportunity to be a lead on Lord of the Rings, the fellowship of the ring, the first one. As I mean, a, it's Lord in, of the in, Rings, in, you know. Lord of the Rings, but it wasn't Lord of the Rings at <laughs> yeah. the time. But it, yeah. I mean, it, it had a lot of buzz. Don't get me wrong, Peter Jackson, amazing, and um, and so he had a chance to be on like a, a lead, like would have been massive for his career. But his wife didn't want to move him and the kids to uh, New Zealand, so he turned <sighs> it down. New Zealand he turned right? it down. Okay, and he straight up told us he's like, "Yo, real talk though, like had I had taken that job." I would not be here teaching you. So think about that when like when you're in a relationship and they're like, nah, I just don't feel like moving there. Like it's your career you're talking about. So I don't want to be harsh in that, but it is something to be mindful of. But uh, and then just ignore the people that say no or say that you're, it's not going to happen. Like you're young. You've got time. You know, even if you're older. Like, dude, change it up. Like, there's always time. Do shit on the side. Like I said, do tutorials online. If you don't have time to go to school, learn it on your own. But be mindful that if it takes you something like, you know, 10 or 15 days to do something, it might they might require you to do it in like five days. That's the only downside of working, you know, on your own on stuff is you may not be uh, I, I, mindful of the time that mm. is expected for you to complete something. But always try, man, because again, I don't want to be like the kids these days and saying like YOLO, but it's true, man. You got one turn around this world. And if you want to do something and go for it, like go for it. Cause the worst that's going to happen is it's not going to work out, but at least you tried. But worse than that is going through life and not actually taking the shot. And then now you're like, fuck man, I wish I had tried. And now I'm 90 and maybe now it is a little too old for me to be trying to get into visual effects. Although it worked we'll on see. 50 shades. I could have worked on 50 Shades Freed, man. I could have done digital hair. I could have worked on Hustlers. I could have worked on Zola. Uh, God damn. You have an interesting resume. Yo, real talk. Real talk. (laughs) After 50 Shades Freed, uh, when I was looking to get into production, I almost ended up on this. I think it was called Moon and Me, which was by the creator of Teletubbies. So straight up, I would have gone from like the strain, which is like this super gnarly vampire show where I got literally heads falling off on my reel to like, Fifty Shades to like literally a kid's show. That would have been like the craziest reel ever. The greatest dark uh, of all time. But uh, a dream. <laughs> awesome. Well, um, Zach, thanks so much for for making this happen and uh, and for having this conversation. If somebody wants to keep an eye on what you're doing, if they want to uh, send you any hate mail for uh, Justice League, if they want to connect with you in any way, uh, what's the best place to do that? And uh, tell people a little bit about the show you're working on right now. Yeah, yeah. So, are you talking about feature film or Pod, pod- the podcast you're working okay, on right yeah, now? So. Yeah. so, yeah. So, Hamilton VFX H A M E L T O N. Got to be different. Uh, Hamilton VFX dot uh, com is my portfolio site. I'm always updating that. There's also an option to contact me. So, if you do really want to send me hate mail, I mean, that's kind of rude. I'm not really expecting that, but I mean, I guess if you want to just ruin my day, you could do that. But uh, I also appreciate compliments. If you want to do that? That's better. Yeah, um, let's do that. Send a compliment. Yeah, send me over. compliments. Like I love Fifty Shades. I love the original Justice League. I, I could I could use that in my life. Um, but yeah, and then the other thing that I'm working on right now is uh, film as we know it. 
uh, podcast. You can find us on Instagram, all the socials at, at hashtag films. We know at pod uh, much akin to, you know, Eric here. We love movies and we want to talk about it. My co-host uh, Tim Callahan and I really get into the nitty gritty. We do a fun trivia show. We do in-depth reviews. And then we also do deep dives into kind of just the behind the scenes of certain movies and really kind of give you all the little nitty gritty details that happen. All the hot goss, if you will. Um, but yeah, so that's a great show. And if you want to find me on social media, it's usually at Zach Hamilton. I think on Instagram, it's at that Zach Hamilton, but Z A C H. I don't know if Eric will put links in there, but maybe he will, but I'll put all the links. I'll put all the links out there. Uh, We're going to see now. We'll see if you cut that out and cut out the links. Now we'll see Eric. I'm going to leave it and I'm going to put the links just to show that I'm a man of my word, but uh, (laughs) thanks again for, for coming on. Looking forward to checking out your podcast very soon. Thanks so much for having me, man. Please stay in touch. Seriously, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to the Film School Podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, don't forget to leave a five-star review and hit subscribe so you won't miss a single episode.